Prestige heads and welcome to American Prestige. I'm Danny Bessner here as always with my friend and comrade Derek Davison. And we are excited to be joined by no one today. We're just doing the news. And Derek, there has been so much news this week. We've been drowning in news. So why don't we just There start? always is. I think I mean the top story is obviously that Mackenzie Scott is apparently divorcing her second husband. So uh, you know, anybody who wants to throw their hat in the ring there. All right, so uh, let's do 40 on minutes on uh, Mackenzie Scott, and then <laughs> let's get into the Nord Stream. Uh, Sounds good. So, uh, so what's been going on? The, the Nord Stream news has obviously, I think, been the biggest uh, of the week. So, so why don't you just tell us what has literally happened, and then we could talk about uh, other things around that. Uh, so on Tuesday, uh, these reports started emerging of uh, people detecting leaks in the Nord Stream 1 and 2 Natural gas pipelines, Nord Stream 1, was not operating. The Russians had taken it offline, but it has, had been prior to the uh, Ukraine kind of uh, uh, dust up, uh, had been supplying a significant amount of natural gas direct from Russia to Germany and on from there to other parts of Europe. Uh, Nord Stream 2 was uh, built. It was intended to be turned on to supplement uh, or complement Nord Stream 1 uh, for the same purpose. Uh, it's never been used because the German government, when Russia in invaded Ukraine, uh, put the kibosh on that project. But it's still there. Both of these pipelines, although they weren't active, were still filled with pressurized natural gas. Uh, so on Tuesday, uh, there were these reports of leaks. Uh, you know, subsequently, there were reconnaissance flights, you know, taking pictures of the Baltic Sea, and you can see these pools of methane just bubbling to the surface and, and kind of evaporating off. Now, the Swedish Coast Guard has found a fourth leak in the North Stream gas pipelines that ruptured after undersea explosions were detected. Scientists say the Baltic Sea lines could be pumping out the biggest methane release on record. So it's clear that, that uh, there were at least three leaks. Now I think the uh, reporting is that there were four, they detected four distinct leaks uh, in these two pipelines. The assessment was made after Uppsala University in Sweden, uh, their seismograph apparently detected on Monday a couple of incidents uh, that they're calling man-made or at least not natural. They weren't earthquake-related or seismic incidents. Uh, so they may have been explosions. We don't know. Um, but that's where things stand now. The, the leak is still going. Everybody's you know kind of investigating. Somebody's got the uh, the old hot dog soup meme going on. You know, we're trying to find out who did this. It's it's probably either the United States or Russia. I don't think anybody else would have the capability to carry out something like this. But but as to who actually did it, I mean, the motive doesn't make a whole lot of sense on either side. So I'm I'm kind of at a loss. Derek, can we just briefly go through what are the potential motives that people have been articulating? I know the truth is we don't know, but people are going to be talking about this. So what is the case for the U.S. doing it? What is the case for Russia doing it? So the main case for the U.S. doing it is that this kind of seals the deal with Europe in terms of the EU's commitment to maintaining sanctions against Russia and keeping up the uh, you know, the the front on uh, with regard to the Ukraine war. As long as these pipelines existed uh, and could, in theory, be providing gas to Europe, there was always the chance that some kind of energy crunch 
maybe even as soon as this winter, if it's a particularly difficult winter, uh, you know, could have caused governments in Europe, uh, Germany being the main one, obviously, because these things let out in Germany, uh, to, to waver, uh, perhaps, and, and uh, you know, kind of wonder whether their sacrifice is worth it or, you know, whether they should continue to uh, politically, whether they could even continue to, to sort of support Ukraine at the cost of their own citizens. That's no longer an issue now because the pipelines don't work anymore. They're, they're clearly uh, functionally destroyed. I mean, you know, damaged heavily enough that they, they couldn't possibly be used without uh, serious repairs. On the Russian side, uh, you know, I've seen all kinds of uh, kind of thought experiments. You know, maybe they did this as a demonstration that they could destroy other undersea pipelines. The fact that neither one was being used means that they could, even though the pipelines are essentially Russian property, uh, they could blow them up without any incurring much economic costs since they weren't, you know, providing any economic benefit anyway. You know, there are other pipelines that run through the Baltic and, the, you know, the suggestion may be, you know, these, these things could be at risk. You better watch out. It, it could have been an attempt to sort of uh, goose the global energy market, which is flagging a little bit. I mean, oil prices have come down into the high 80s. I'm uh, not sure about natural gas prices. They usually kind of follow along with oil prices. So there may be an, may have been a, an attempt to kind of spike those prices up again. If so, that, that doesn't seem to have worked. You know, it's possible, it's even possible I've seen, you know, suggestions that this was supposed to be some kind of false flag or something, uh, which, you know, we get into the the realm of kind of conspiratorial thinking. Uh, the one thing I will note is a Polish politician, Radek Sikorski, uh, who happens to be the husband of Anne Applebaum, who, if you're familiar with... Friend of the pot. Uh, Neoconservative, yeah, friend of the pot, absolutely. Uh, went on Twitter and thanked the United States. He tweeted just like a picture of one of the one weirdest these methane tweets pools. in a just while. a very bizarre tweet. <laughs> uh, tweeted a picture of one of these methane pools and said, thank you, United States, I think was the uh, the entirety of the tweet. So strongly suggesting that the U.S. did it. And, and you know, uh, that, that generated a lot of speculation. Like, is he doing this because he got permission from the United States to tweet this and, you know, it's kind of a wink and a nudge at, at Russia or is he completely off the off his rocker? Who knows? So that was an interesting development. But really, I mean, nobody's admitted anything. You know, everybody in the West is pointing the finger at Russia. The Russians have pointed the finger at the United States. Uh, everybody says they're going to investigate. At least one of the parties who will be investigating this uh, was probably was most likely responsible uh, for having done it. Uh, but I, I can't give you any deeper insight into uh, who may have done it because the cases don't make sense. Yeah, to the me. cases are the bizarre US, on either side. Uh, there's a there's a risk of of serious escalation in an, an attack like this. And is it worth it just to take out these two unused pipelines? It's it's unclear to me. For the Russians, again, I mean, you know, they had their show of force. They shut the pipelines off. Uh, they don't have to turn them back on. I don't know what blowing them up necessarily gets you. Uh, in addition, you know, over and above, the, it gets the you a fuck of, you to the West, turning them off. Yeah, that's I the, guess. The, I mean, yeah. that's that's a very, it's a very thin read, I think, to hang on. Not that it's impo impossible. And again, I think it's one of these two countries that that did it. Um, but I, I think it's a very thin read for a for a theory to be built upon. So let's move on to uh, Russian mobilization. So, Derek, could you just remind people what Putin has done and what has been the response domestically? Uh, so Putin last week uh, announced a partial mobilization. He didn't really uh, go into a lot of detail, which I think has added to some panic uh, in Russia. Uh, his defense minister, Sergei Shoigu, later clarified that this was a partial mobilization. It was about 300,000 
uh, military veterans, basically people who had previously served in the Russian military were being called up uh, to go to Ukraine after a couple of weeks of training. But I think partly because of the vagueness, partly because of just the, the concept of, you know, the mobilization, tens of thousands of Russians have, have reportedly been flocking to land borders. Flights out of Russia have been sold out. There have been long lines observed at border, the border with Finland, with Kazakhstan, with uh, Georgia, with Mongolia, you know, all kind of in every, every which direction. There are now reports of some efforts being made by the Russian, or by Russian authorities to uh, stifle these lines. Uh, uh, the officials in uh, the North Ossetia region uh, have begun restricting the flow of car traffic into that region from other parts of Russia. Uh, there are also reports of Russian officials establishing checkpoints at these borders where military-aged men who uh, you know, think they're about to escape the mobilization are instead uh, called over to these checkpoints and given draft papers. So that's <clears throat> quite a surprise for them, I'm sure. None of this is is well documented, but I think it's it's uh, clearly you know there there has been uh, some sort of exodus to the border, and it, it does look like uh, there are efforts being made to stem that flow now. And so on to Ukraine. What referendums have recently been passed, and could you give us an update on the war? Sure. So uh, the big news is um, Tuesday was the end of the uh, several-day referendum, uh, referendums, I guess, in four Ukrainian regions, Donetsk, Kherson, Luhansk, and Zaporizhia, on the question of whether or not they, the populations there want to be annexed to Russia. As the Security Council was convened, Russia was already signaling it was about to declare victory in the four referenda in eastern Ukraine. The results, such as they were, uh, were all uh, overwhelmingly in favor of annexation. There are a couple of reasons uh, to explain this. One is, you know, the Russians just outright kind of manufactured the vote, the, the, the result, which is possible. Um, another is, you know, after months of war and displacement, most of the populations in these regions that are under Russian control, who don't want to live under Russian control, have fled. So the people who are left are probably more inclined to say, yes, I would like to you know, live in Russia. I would like to be annexed to Russia. So there are you know, a few ways to, to kind of parse that. It sounds like Putin uh, is going to move maybe as soon as Friday to announce the official annexation of these regions. Now, that would have to go through the Russian parliament, which would probably take place next week sometime, but it could ha it could all happen very quickly. Uh, what it doesn't sound like, uh, and this had been some, some of the speculation prior to the vote, which I thought was a little bit compelling at the time, that maybe Putin would kind of pump the brakes a little bit after these votes came in uh, and say, you know, okay, let's, let's talk now. You have these, you know, these votes. I, I have a, uh, a moral-ish justification for annexing these regions. Let's have some, some discussions about uh, how we can carve things up. It does not appear that there's any interest uh, on Russia's part in doing that. And Ukrainian President uh, Volodymyr Zelensky has said, you know, if, if the annexation goes forward, uh, there's not going to be any push for negotiations from his side. This is all not great. It creates a situation that makes it more likely uh, for there to be just sort of a perpetual conflict here uh, with Russia occupying these areas uh, uh, illegally, at least under Russian law, annexing them, the annexations won't be recognized, just like the Crimean annexation was never recognized internationally. Uh, they won't have broad recognition nationally, internationally, but this, this can sort of just fester uh, indefinitely, which is, which is really not great. Anatoly even compared it to Kashmir, 
Um, and that, uh, yeah, that really, I think that's yeah. that's a fair uh, that's a, a fair comparison. I think it's it's a bit different from Crimea because Crimea is somewhat geographically isolated from the rest of Ukraine. Here, you have you're just going to have a very long, um, imposed, unrecognized border that yeah would be very difficult to defend. And you could have you know even if the main fighting uh, in this conflict does eventually subside, you could have clashes along the border you could have militants infiltrating you know one way or the other and carrying out attacks it, it's 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 really not a good situation uh as far as the the progress of the war has certainly slowed down since uh, the ukrainians made their big advance in um in kharkiv a couple of weeks ago the new york times did a report over the weekend on the uh, forgotten counteroffensive the one in Kherson. it's not going well for the ukrainians they are, you know, grinding for a little, if any, territory and taking heavy losses, it sounds like. Uh, alternatively, the Russians uh, have been making greater and greater use, it seems, of the swarming Shahid-136 kamikaze drones that they've acquired from Iran. They've been attacking Odessa, which is the, you know, the major port city in southwestern Ukraine that is still probably on Russia's wish list, although whether they can actually... Um, you know, advance far enough to take it. You know, dr drone strikes are one thing, but actually, uh, you know, launching an attack on the city would be quite something else. One thing that I will note uh, is somewhat interesting. Dmitry Peskov, who's the, the main spokesperson for the Kremlin, told reporters on Wednesday that the invasion will continue, the war will continue at least until uh, the Russian military has seized the entirety of Donetsk province in Ukraine. Now, the Russians control... Uh, about 60% of that province right now. So there's about 40% still under Ukrainian control. This seems like a trial balloon to me because I don't think Peskov would have just kind of popped off about something like this to reporters without some approval from on high. Uh, it's interesting. It's uh, the first time I've seen in a while, at least, any Russian official uh, suggest a, a potential endpoint or a place where the Russians might be comfortable negotiating. I don't think this is a, a settlement the Ukrainians could accept. They, I don't think they can accept Russia in control of not, you know, all the territory that they've, uh, they're now about to annex plus the, the last 40% of Donetsk. I just don't think that's feasible for, for the Ukrainians to accept, but it is interesting that this suggestion came out of Moscow, uh, on Wednesday. I, I don't know what to make of it other than to say, uh, you know, they seem to be at least on some level looking toward an, an end game. Yeah. So that's basically it. There's been a little bit of movement in the East around Lehman, uh, which is a, a city or town in Donetsk that's been under Russian control for some time now. There, there have been Ukrainian moves to sort of surround that town, which could have some interesting implications. But I think it's too early to say whether they're going to be successful in actually kind of uh, taking it from the Russians. So let's move on to Italy and the Italian election. Now, we did a special on this earlier in the week, so if people really want to go in depth, please check that out. But Derek, why don't we just do a very quick update on that? Yeah, so Sunday uh, was a, was uh, Italy's parliamentary election. It was, uh, you know, all the polling, or most of the polling, uh, had suggested a conservative coalition victory, a three-party conservative coalition. There was some kind of wiggle room because uh, Italian law requires that uh, you, you don't publish any more opinion polls, I think, within two weeks uh, of an election. So there's a, a sort of black area where, you know, some last-minute uh, moves could happen. But but that didn't happen here. It was a clear, uh, you know, went along with uh, the polling, the three-party bloc, which includes the center-right Forza Italia party and the far-right League and Brothers of Italy parties, 
won, uh, I think around 42, 43, maybe around 45% uh, and maximum uh, percent of the vote. Uh, they have comfortable majorities in both houses of the Italian parliament. The Brothers of Italy emerged as the largest, uh, as was expected, the largest party in this coalition and the second largest uh, overall in Italy, which means Georgia Maloney, a big fan of Benito Mussolini, is now going to be prime minister uh, of Italy. And that's uh, that's where things stand, uh, basically. As you say, we, we talked about this in some detail earlier, earlier this week. Yeah, so if people are interested in hearing about the connections to fascism, how this happened, and what this might augur, please check out our special. So Derek, now let's move on uh, to the United Kingdom. What's going on with the UK economy as Truss enters office? Uh, she's doing a great job. <laughs> well, we could all have known that. <laughs> we, I mean, we knew. Yeah, we knew she was gonna she was gonna hit the ground running. Um, so, uh, with the the caveat that I'm not an economist, the uh, Prime Minister Truss and her new Chancellor of the Exchequer, Quasi Quarteng, uh, announced uh, last week their big mini budget that was going to carry the UK uh, through the beginning of her her term and the rest of this year. Uh, it included a, an energy bailout for people dealing with, uh, you know, f- struggling with the high cost of energy, as well as a just mwah, a Thatcherite uh, or Reaganite uh, massive deficit financed upper class tax cut. They announced several tax cuts. We're talking about the biggest cuts in 50 years. And the key problem here for the market is that the government announced that it was increasing public borrowing. That in particular, the cumulative effect is, you know, ballooning will be a ballooning of the UK's budget deficit. The tax cut in particular seems to have sent uh, markets into a tiz. The pound dropped uh, to its lowest level in history, I think, against the US dollar on Monday, almost to full parity. Uh, it's it recovered a little bit, but it's been wobbling uh, around uh, you know dollar levels uh, since then. The International Monetary Fund, of all things, uh, which normally just lectures developing countries on how they need to cut social spending, actually <laughs> criticized this budget for its uh, giveaway to the upper class and uh, uh, the effect that that's likely to have not just on the British economy but on inequality. Trust seems to be sticking with things. The Bank of England has been has started buying UK bonds to try and backstop that market and prevent it from collapsing. So things are a little bit rough in the British economy right now. It sounds like Truss is is sticking to her guns, though. She's committed to this tax cut no matter what. So my hope is that we get Boris Johnson back in charge by Christmas, but we'll we'll have to see. <laughs> one could one could have holiday dreams. Uh, so let's move on to the Middle East or, or the greater Middle East, however we want to call it, and talk about uh, the protests in Iran, which we've also done a special on. So if people, again, want to hear more about their origins, their potential impact, how they fit into Iran socially, please check out that special. But Derek, why don't you give us a bit of an update? So the update in Iran has been Things seem to be tapering off a little bit. The protests seem to be tapering off a little bit, which is expected after they've uh, been going on for uh, almost two weeks now. They're continuing. I mean, there have been 13, I think, or this will be the 13th straight night maybe of uh, protests over the death of Masa Amini, a 22-year-old Iranian Kurdish woman who was taken into custody by morality police ostensibly for not wearing hijab the the right way uh, and died while in custody. There's strong indications that she was uh, beaten by police and, and the beating, you know, was beaten so badly she, she went into a coma and died. Uh, so that's the, the basics. There have been protests every night since the, the 16th of, of September. And 
the death toll in those protests has been climbing as they've expanded to cities across the country. Officially, I think the government is still going with a death toll in the 40s, uh, which they say includes members of the security forces, in particular the paramilitary uh, besiege militia. There's an Oslo-based uh, NGO called Iran Human Rights uh, that has the death toll in the 70s, uh, 75 or 76 was the last I saw protesters, uh, all protesters. Uh, the Iranian government has been throttling uh, the internet. Um, they haven't completely shut it down, which has been the tactic they've used in past uh, kind of mass demonstrations like this. They seem to have smartened up a little bit in understanding that that the economic impact of you know, kind of cutting off the internet entirely and the social impact tends to fuel more unrest rather than, you know, kind of abating it. So what they, they seem to be doing instead is throttling social media sites and trying to prevent videos of the protests from getting out of the country or getting out to, to, you know, people who, who may be affected by them. What's new really in these protests is that the, the, the situation has expanded now into Iraq. The Iranians, Three times since this past weekend have now uh, have launched missile and drone strikes uh, into northern Iraq, where there are a number of Iranian Kurdish militant groups that have uh, bases or, or otherwise, you know, other facilities. Uh, most recently, uh, they launched a missile and drone strike on Wednesday, targeting what appears to be uh, facilities used by the Democratic Party of Iranian Kurdistan killing at least 13 people last I saw and wounding dozens more. So they're accusing these groups of kind of fomenting uh, the protests or, or being responsible for, for these protests over Amini's death. Wednesday's strike was, was definitely the largest of them so far. There may be more, I don't know, to come. But it drew a lot of international condemnation. The Iraqi government summoned the Iranian ambassador. You know, the UK, the US, the EU all kind of condemned the violation of Iraqi sovereignty, which is interesting because Turkey uh, launches attacks like this against the PKK in northern Iraq all the time and nobody ever says anything except the Iraqi government. So that's an interesting and, and I think potentially unwelcome uh, expansion of these uh, protests. I, I don't know that it'll create any bigger fallout than it has, but still, uh, you know, you don't like to see things go from national to regional in this part of the world. So let's move on to Saudi Arabia, where Sion Mohammed bin Salman, uh, just you know, good guy overall, has become prime minister. So Derek, what's going on? One of our guiding lights on American prestige, uh, Mohammed bin Salman. Uh, yes, uh, so um, King Salman, Saudi King Salman, uh, reshuffled his cabinet on Tuesday, or uh, you know, had it reshuffled for him. I don't think he's in really day to day. Uh, running of the kingdom. At he's this not in reshuffling condition. He's not, yeah, he's not really, you know, the guy you're going to go to to ask who is uh, running all of his ministries. Uh, so it seems it seems pretty obvious that, that MBS, who's been de facto running the kingdom for uh, some time now, uh, organized this reshuffle to promote himself to prime minister. Uh, he's been, uh, in addition to crown prince and heir apparent, he has been technically defense minister for several years. Um, so now he's prime minister. You don't often hear about the Saudi prime minister, and that's because traditionally, with only a couple of exceptions, the prime minister of Saudi Arabia has always been the king. Uh, they hold those offices in, in tandem. Uh, you have to go all the way back to Faisal, who was uh, crown prince in the 50s and early 60s uh, and served as uh, 
prime minister on a couple of, in a couple of stints for his relatively unpopular brother, King Saud. So it's been, you know, since then, the king, kings have held the, the prime ministership themselves. And there was a little bit more reshuffling underneath. I mean, Khalid bin Salman, the, the uh, crown prince's younger brother, who'd been deputy defense minister and effectively serving as defense minister as MBS was running the kingdom, uh, he's now officially uh, defense minister. He got promoted to that, that gig. What this does, uh, first of all, it kind of cements MBS's authority just a little bit more than it already had been. It takes his de facto ruling status and, and makes it a little more legal, a little more official. Uh, what it also does is it gives the Biden administration, should it desire to do so, justification for conferring sovereign immunity on the crown prince. Uh, he happens to be facing a lawsuit in the U.S. over the 2018 murder uh, of Jamal Khashoggi, the, the former Washington Post journalist. The court has asked the Biden administration to weigh in on whether or not uh, the prince should have sovereign immunity in this case. Uh, the U.S. U.S. policy typically is only to give sovereign immunity at high levels, head of state, head of government. Uh, so, you know, presidents, prime ministers, kings, that sort of thing. Uh, with MBS now prime minister, it makes it a little easier to justify. Uh, I'm not saying this is what's going to happen, but but it is an interesting coincidence uh, that this lawsuit is going on at the same time that they did this reshuffle, which doesn't really change anything functionally about the Saudi government, just kind of gives MBS uh, a nifty new title. So uh, anyway, just an interesting little coincidence to note. So we're going to have a special on the Brazil election next week, but Derek, why don't you give us a very short preview? Sure. I mean, the, the election pits uh, in the main former President Luis Inacio Lula da Silva uh, against incumbent Jair Bolsonaro. Polling has, since I don't time immemorial, I think you go back to the Bronze Age and find polls that say Lula is going to win. Uh, but they've been consistent about this for months and months. Uh, the only thing that's that's kind of wobbled has been the uh, size of Lula's lead. There was a period, uh, let's say a month ago, where Bolsonaro in most polls had cut Lula's first round lead. And the election is on Sunday, the first round. And then if they need to go to a runoff, if nobody gets 50% plus one of the vote. They'll go to a runoff, uh, I think on October 19th, but I could be uh, mistaken, so sometime later in October. So... You know, polling has shown consistently that Lula is ahead of Bolsonaro in both in first round voting intentions and in a hypothetical uh, runoff between the two men. Lula's lead had shrunk, uh, uh, you know, kind of consistently in polling into the single digits. Uh, as I say, about maybe a month ago, you could have said the race was tightening up. Uh, it since seems to have expanded. A recent poll put Lula in the lead with 47 percent of the vote, followed by Bolsonaro with an estimated 33 percent. Now, a lot of this could just be statistical noise, but there are some indications, there are some reasons to think that this is a real movement. Bolsonaro uh, had tightened the election basically by expanding Brazilian welfare policies, by expanding social uh, support payments from the government in order to win some portion of kind of the working class vote or the lower class vote over to him that whatever he he had done the, the the you know the efforts that he had made in that regard seemed to be getting washed out by inflation uh and consequently people who were frustrated over the state of the brazilian economy and their uh position in it are once again frustrated by the state of the brazilian economy and their position in it and they're taking it out on bolsonaro so there's some reason to think uh you know i think 
there's some reason to, to believe that this movement is real. And it puts Lula, uh, again, in, in the double digits in terms of uh, his first round lead. It has, in a couple of polls, put Lula in striking distance of a first round uh, outright victory. Uh, again, which would require him to win 50% plus one of the valid votes. So that discounts, you know, people who don't check off a, a box or don't, you know, don't vote in the presidential election or uh, whose ballots are otherwise fouled. So he, he may be in striking distance of that. He certainly seems to be leading in, uh, in the polls consistently. And I know polling, you know, people say polling isn't, isn't accurate. That's fine. Yes. But I think his lead has been so consistent and so large in so many polls that you can say this is uh, certainly the favorite to uh, to come out on top here. Now, what you need to watch out, what we need to watch out for uh, is Bolsonaro uh, has made a lot of noise about rejecting the election results if he loses. Uh, he's questioned Brazil's electronic voting system. He's talked about asking the military to step in and do its own vote count. Uh, which somehow uh, you know is supposed to be fairer than than election officials. Uh, so there is the possibility of some some unrest and maybe potentially heavy unrest. The military has been fairly noncommittal, uh, as far as I can tell, uh, about whether or not it would be willing to step in here and uh, engineer an outcome. Let's say uh, so. Uh, you know that's that's up in the air, but it, it seems likely that if Bolsonaro loses, he will ask at least, or he will try to get the military to step in uh, on his behalf. Just to quickly, there's a relatively recent history between 1964 yes. and 1985. The Brazil was go governed by a military. There government. is, yeah, there is precedent for something like that. So that's uh, uh, something to be uh, mindful of. So, Derek, let's end on the ceasefire in Colombia. Yes. So, uh, just a short item here. This was uh, reported on Wednesday. Uh, Gustavo Petro, the president of Colombia, uh, his government said that they've uh, achieved ceasefire commitments, uh, unilateral ceasefire commitments from 10, at least 10 uh, of Colombia's many, many, many uh, armed militant groups, including a couple of big ones, uh, a couple of the largest factions of former revolutionary armed forces of Colombia or FARC uh, fighters. Uh, there have been, uh, you know, groups that didn't accept that the FARC's 2016 peace deal with the government and have continued to, to operate. Uh, a couple of those have agreed, uh, apparently, according to the government at least, uh, have agreed to, to these ceasefires. And the Clan del Golfo, which is uh, the largest drug cartel in Colombia these days, uh, also apparently one of them, Petro came into office looking to bring an end to these multiple conflicts with these, you know, as I say, many, many uh, armed militant groups. He's been offering light sentences to people who, you know, put down their, their weapons and come in and, uh, you know, agree to be interrogated and, and talk to the government. He's been engaged with, uh, in a dialogue with the ELN, which is the, the largest, uh, at this point, rebel group in Colombia. I don't think the ELN is not part of this unilateral ceasefire agreement, uh, but they have been talking about a, a kind of bilateral ceasefire arrangement that would lead to peace talks with that group. So, you know, this is one of the major things that Petro came into office looking to do. His presidency, I don't think it's um, an exaggeration to say that his presidency um, is to some degree going to be defined by whether or not he can end these conflicts in a negotiated way. Uh, so he seems to be off to a, to a decent start, but uh, we'll see. Thanks, Derek. The news happens, you read it, and we tell everyone. Thank you so much. <laughs> <laughs> that's a good sign off. I need to I've been I've been trying to work on a sign off. Uh that that's well, uh 
we'll workshop that one. So keep, if any keep, prestige keep heads, if any prestige heads <laughs> have any suggestions, please let us know, and we'll see you all soon. Bye. Bye. Bye.